Hello, my name is John O'Connell, and welcome to AMX Fika Leadership Podcast. So over these podcasts, I'll be speaking to some inspirational and innovative data and analytic contributors from across industry and the health and care sectors. I'll be asking each of them to share with us some of the exciting work they have underway, which is helping to shape the health and care analytics space, as well as asking some of them their motivational insights into their career paths to date. So why FICA? FICA is a social phenomenon in Sweden, I thought I'd borrow. It's a legitimate reason to set aside some really quality time to catch up with friends, family and colleagues over a coffee and a cake. So joining myself today is James Freed, the Chief Digital and Information Officer for Health Education England. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me. And James, I believe you're passionate about uh, digital literacy and the professionalisation of health informatics across health and care systems. I am indeed. Right. And I also believe part of your role, which is a big role, you are the Deputy SRO for the Digital Readiness Programme, which I believe is funded by NHSX, but led by Health Education England. And again, that's looking into start development across health and care as well. That's right. Great. So, really welcome. Great to have you join our AMX Fika podcast. So, as we start with all our interviewees, um, we start off with the most important question first, James, which is Fika's about coffee and a cake with friends. So, what, what would your preference be, tea or coffee? And what would your favourite cake be? So, definitely tea. I am not a coffee fan, never have been. And in terms of cake, I was thinking about choosing a vanilla slice because I do love a vanilla slice. And it's been a long time since I've had one. But yesterday it was my daughter's 10th birthday and my wife made a delicious cookies and cream cake and so my current choice is my wife's cookies and cream cake i'm gonna uh, have a a nice loyal answer there that's perfect answer oh great i've been all healthy today so i'm drinking a was a homemade turmeric with a star and ace uh healthy tea (laughs) so i I was last for but no i'm I'm just on yorkshire yorkshire tea (laughs) Fantastic. That's the best. <laughs> Brilliant. So, James, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, with AMX Figa, we try and sort of share with our, our listeners some of the sort of journeys that everybody's taken and, you know, our career paths are not necessarily sort of linear. There's lots of opportunity that's popped up along the way. Would you like to share with us sort of our listeners sort of your career today and any sort of insights that you've picked up along the way? I'd be really keen to sort of hear about that. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. So, um, yeah, I suppose like most of your listeners, certainly most of the CIOs who I've met, uh, my career, um, I could never have predicted, let's put it that way, it, and it has gone all around the houses. So I, I started um, working life thinking I was going to cure cancer, actually, the hubris of youth. Um, I did an a, um, undergraduate degree in biochemistry and genetics and a master's in oncology, and then I did uh, most of a PhD, which I never actually completed, um, in molecular oncology, working in uh, skin cancer and human papillomavirus. And I learned a number of things during that PhD. Uh, most importantly, I suppose, that bench science is not for me. There's about a 20-year delay between um, a breakthrough being uh, uh, made at the bench um, in wet science and it translating into uh, systematic patient care. And that delay was just too distant. It was too far away. And I knew that science wasn't for me, so I moved on. Um, after I decided that the that I was going to jack in my PhD, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I applied for 24 different jobs and they were fairly varied, one of which was wow. MI5. I, I did not get that. Um, although my family thought I had for a while. Uh, um, 
and uh, also um, actually a, a comms lead um, to get race on the agenda. Um, but I finally took a job for an organisation called the Cancer Services Collaborative in Southwest London. In fact, the Cancer Services Collaborative was um, a national body under the remit of something called the uh, NHS Modernisation Agency, which is a which is a um, uh, predecessor of our modern day NHS improvement. Um, many iterations before the great grand father or grandmother of NHS improvement. Um, and the Modernisation Agency had a number of initiatives, ones around uh, cancer improvement. The cancer plan had just come out and it was about trying to help uh, local organisations, mostly trusts, mostly hospitals, to rethink their uh, cancer pathways, um, actually ideally across different um, organisational boundaries. So in particular, the the primary care and secondary care referral um, and how we can get um, those uh, pathways of care as uh, quick as possible. So I learned lots in those three years working for the Cancer Collaborative about how to do change and importantly how not to do change. Um, I was parachuted into a team and told to change them. That did not go down well. I learned a lot about the the, the uh, need to own a change if it affects you um, uh, and came to the conclusion that we are not afraid of change per se, but we are afraid of losing control. And I, I saw myself as, uh, um, well, I, I saw from the outside, if you suppose, and in retrospect, um, that I was taking control of people uh, uh, um, for their own destiny and the design of the services they were responsible for. And uh, in retrospect, if you articulate it like that, it's no wonder that I, I didn't have as much success as I uh, had hoped for. But in the process, I also saw, I, I, I suppose I had my first proper, decent, formative experience of the NHS um, frontline. And looking around the hospitals that I was working in, I saw what I would describe as 1980s technology. And this would have been in the year 2000, 2001. Um, it it didn't fill me with confidence, let's put it that way. Um, and I remember thinking, you know what, I really, really want to try and help solve this problem. I'm really interested in, I can see it's a problem that needs to be solved, but I, I'm not a technologist. How am I supposed to help? And my, my I remember talking to my boss at the time and just saying, oh, I'm really interested in uh, having a job in, uh, if only there was something, I don't know, a national program for IT or something like that. And my boss said, why don't you look in the HSJ? And those five little fateful words, those exact words, the ones that I said to my boss, were in a job um, advert that was in the HSJ when I happened to open it. And uh, I applied. It felt like fate. And I got the job um, as a best practice process design lead, which I did for a while. It's, it's basically business analysis, process redesign, and a little bit of contract negotiation. We worked with um, the suppliers I was working in London. I was also the the, um, the national lead for prevention, screening, and surveillance. So I went I went up to Leeds for a couple of days a week to to um, talk about and think about and design those elements of um, the uh, the NPFIT or Connective Health, as it became known, um, specification and its implementation. Now. Um, a lot about MPFIT was around, in fact, the, the two words that were repeated often were ruthless standardization. You know, we, we were going to make substantial rapid inroads by um, encouraging slash forcing uh, local uh, organizations, again, mostly hospitals, to adopt consistent ways of working supported by consistent technology. 
And uh, that didn't work either. I think probably because the lesson that I saw in my first job had not been learned in my second. Now, I can't claim responsibility for the National Programme Variety, thank goodness. Um, but I can say that that the approach also didn't work. Um, and I, I, it kind of um, hammered home the point that those in charge of uh, of a change need to be involved in it. Um, or rather the other way around, if you're involved in a service that needs to change, you need to be involved in the approach that is uh, taken in order to change that service. So um, I left the national programme and I went and joined the Health Protection Agency, um, which is a predecessor of our modern day health, uh, uh, sorry, Public Health England. And I had three jobs there. I was the head of information services and standards when I started. I became head of an operational information management team. And then when uh, the HPA uh, became Public Health England, I became their first head of information strategy and I uh, wrote the first Public Health England knowledge strategy, which is um, currently being revamped. Um, and in that process, I learned about um, the power of consultation, the power of co-creation, actually. So we wrote that um, uh, knowledge strategy very much on the back of what uh, public health professionals in the NHS and in local governments felt that they needed from a national body. Um, it, it was also a little bit from the perspective of the services and products that we had in PHE, but actually we did a huge amount to try and understand what the needs of our, our service users were. And it was um, a real pleasure, actually, to, to see so much interest and appreciation for simply asking the question. And I learned quite a lot about engaging with your user base um, and trying to see the world from their perspective. Um, and uh, it was great. I, I, I it, was a, it was a really useful piece of work, but I didn't have the, um, the power to implement that strategy. I could write it and I could set, I could set Public Health England the, I suppose, the mission, but I couldn't um, implement it. I didn't have that responsibility. So when I saw the job in Health Education England to be a Chief Information Officer, I saw that opportunity to um, both uh, write and lead and implement um, a strategy for change. And I knew um, that I had a toolkit of um, curiosity, of being really interested in the perspective of um, the users of services that I was responsible for delivering. And I really wanted to get my teeth stuck in. The other reason that I really wanted to join HEU was because they said that the, their number one value was to value their staff. And I knew that I really wanted to work in a place that did that. And that's Brilliant. where I am. Fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, thanks for sharing that. It's an incredible journey. And uh, yeah, looking after your staff, you can't, that's, that's got to be number one for everybody, hasn't it? I think it's so important in... Uh, the roles going forward and also when, when we spoke earlier you mentioned as well that you know that new role that chief information role uh, officer role that you, you went into and we all kind of get that feeling of feeling like an imposter or what people refer to as kind of imposter syndrome um, and you mentioned you know having significant experience in change management the strategic development and the experience that you had there but not necessarily being a technologist yeah how are you able to sort of uh, manage that sort of feeling going through in, in the role that you're in now yeah so i um good question so I um, I did feel like an imposter, and from time to time I still do. And I've come to the conclusion actually that's no that's neither necessarily a bad thing, as long as it doesn't take you over, and neither nor is it um, unusual. Uh, I have spoken uh, about 
uh, imposter syndrome or feeling like an imposter, really, um, because I don't think I suffer from imposter syndrome. I don't feel it quite that keenly. But I do um, fairly regularly think that maybe I'm out of my depth. Um, and you're absolutely right. This the, the lack of a technological background in what is traditionally a very technological job. Most of the CIOs or CDIOs in health and care come from an IT background, and I do not. You know, I, I've never worked in a server room. Um, I, the, the amount of coding that I have done is is limited to um, either uh, uh, writing macros in Excel or copying codes out of um, magazines for my ZX Spectrum. You know, it's hardly. Uh, world beating um so that so yeah my lack of technological experience made me feel as if maybe there were whole swathes of my job that i couldn't do very well um and i had no formal qualifications for being a chief information officer when i first got this role and in fact there wasn't really any formal qualifications out there 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 are a number of qualifications for quite specific or bespoke technological elements there have been qualifications for security, for information governance, for coding. Um, but actually, very few jobs in the technology world require those qualifications, and certainly not in the NHS, or not usually in the NHS. The CIO is, is no exception. So um, around the same time, I started getting involved in a program of work that is now called the Digital Readiness Program. It used to be called yeah. um, Building a, a Digital Ready Workforce. Um, and you mentioned this in, in your intro. So it's it paid for by NHSX, used to be the National Information Board uh, and delivered by uh, and led by Health Education England. So um, part of that brief, and it has been for the last six years, has been around professionalising the health and care digital workforce or digital data and technology workforce. And I felt that I couldn't very well lead that professionalism programme without trying to explore um, what that means for me. So there were those two twin drivers. You know, I yeah. genuinely wanted to know whether I was any good at my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had this sense of imposter syndrome. And secondly, I was telling everyone else they needed to be good at their job. So I couldn't very well tell them to do that if I wasn't doing it myself. So I had a little look around. Um, and now I have got um, a list of things that I can look at, that I can point to, and I can say, you know what? I don't think I'm an imposter anymore. The first is I was on the first cohort of the NHS Digital Academy. So these are, this is one of the things that we put in place as part of the Digital Readiness Programme. It's aimed at uh, senior digital leaders, chief information officers and chief clinical information officers of all professional backgrounds, um, medical nursing, pharmacy, AHP, etc. And uh, so and I was on the first cohort of that and passed, thankfully. Um, I also uh, registered with the professional body. So I am now a fellow of the British Computer Society. I'm a member of AFA um, and I'm a leading practitioner in the Federation of Informatics Professionals. I've also, uh, there's also an exam you can take uh, um, if you're a CIO uh, um, led by CHIME, the College of um, Healthcare Informatics uh, Management Executives. Um, something called the CHCIO exam, the Chartered Healthcare uh, CIO exam, which I also passed. So I think I've got pretty much all of the different qualifications that you can get nowadays. Now, I still sometimes feel a bit like an imposter, but I just have to try and deal with that. And I guess what I'd say to to those people listening is that if you also feel like an imposter some days, you are not alone but as like as you mentioned as well, James, there's, there's an awful lot out there to sort of get your teeth into Digital Academy, Chime, BSc, and also AFA, uh, and get out there and start looking what's out there. Really, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. And it, yeah, it comes on to how you yeah. become a professional, I suppose, and yeah. how you prove it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thanks for sharing that. And following on from there, you mentioned about that, you know, the program, the digital readiness work that you're working on at the moment, looking to professionalize the workforce. You mentioned as well that you'd like to share, was it some of the principles that you think, you know, organizations should work? Do you have to share those with us, some of the research you've you've done? Yeah, sure. So in, yeah. in the digital readiness work, we, we, we think of, um, and so at its center, really, it recognizes that um, the world is changing and it's changing faster than it ever has before. You know, we're in the 21st century now. How do you help everyone um, uh, develop the capabilities they need to undertake their role in the 20, 21st century? And we divided it broadly into three groups of people. The first is the senior leaders, sort of board level executives, non-executives, and how do you help um, develop the capabilities at board level and for organizations as a whole that makes them fit for purpose in the 21st century. The second broad group is um, for uh, informatics staff, by which I mean digital data technology and knowledge professionals um, and change professionals associated with those areas. Um, and how do you help them uh, prove that they're good um, to themselves to and to others, crucially, um, and uh, make sure that they're able to continue learning to be continuously as good as they need to be. And then the third uh, group is around, uh, well, it's everyone else, really. It's everyone. Um, and it's under a piece of work that we call digital literacy. How do you support 3.1 million people to have the right skills to be able to contribute to be a digital-first individual in a digital-first organization? So our, our work led us to um, 152 questionnaires and interviews. The interviews were really interesting. Um, because it, it uh, had no boundaries on what chairs and chief executives could tell us. And what they told us was, um, and this is a few years ago now, but in many cases, this will still be true. They didn't really get digital. It was a bit of a scary word. It meant different things to different people. And there was a tremendous amount of risk when it came to investing large amounts of money in digital technologies. Um, this is the sort of thing that chief executives uh, lost their jobs over if they got it wrong, and it never went perfectly right. Digital was seen as a risk, not as an opportunity. The second thing they said was that their boards were largely of the same mind. They didn't really get digital either. And then thirdly, they said that they employed a chief information officer to get it on their behalf. Um, and then in two-thirds of uh, boards, uh, chief information officers are not on the board. They're unable to present their view at board-level discussions. So we felt that we needed to somehow uh, bridge the gap, create a, um, I guess, a two-way dictionary between what it meant to have a sensible uh, uh, conversation about digital maturity uh, from the perspective of a chief information officer in the language that the board understood. And we used the well-led framework, actually, um, created by CQC as a model. And we came up with eight principles. Um, those principles are now they're freely available through our delivery partners, NHS providers. So if you just search for NHS providers digital boards, you will get all of our information and all of our thinking. And in fact, three brand spanking new guides aimed at organizations trying to tackle uh, digital. But broadly speaking, it, it was how do you help an organization recognize that this rapid pace of change, which is continuing to accelerate and is not showing any signs of slowing down? Um, to, to leverage that, to leverage that opportunity that digital data and technology can now provide us as an industry and uh, us as organizations, we need to be leveraging every single person in our organization and beyond, uh, patients, carers and beyond, to think about how to use it to innovate. And if you do that, you need to have a 
workforce that is digitally able and a culture that enables them to be digitally willing. It enables them to um, to make those changes crucially in a safe way. So we happen to work in the most dangerous industry in the world. If we make mistakes, when we make mistakes, people can die. Um, however, not making change is literally not an option anymore. Um, uh, our processes and our hierarchy, they they stifle innovation because change can cause harm. So we need to, so boards and organizations need to create that absolutely delicate balancing act where you enable everyone, literally everyone to innovate, but you do not let them innovate in a way that's going to cause harm. You create an environment that enables change in a safe way. And if I could summarize our principles, that that is how I'd summarize it. Very delicate balance, but uh, yeah, culture to, to, to improve. And that kind of neatly segues into the, the DDAP profession work that you, you're currently doing, James. Would you better tell us some of our listeners about some of that work as well for, for DDAT as a profession? Um, yeah, and no, I'll be I'll be happy to. So DDAT uh, digital data and technology it's a it's a it's a framework that has been adopted across central government. So central government's got about uh, 700, 800,000 employees. Uh, the NHS has got about 1.4 million. Um, health and social care is about three million. So we're, there, there are several fold difference in terms of the the population we're talking about. But um, uh, um, nonetheless. We are um, trying to develop a better way of uh, talking about our profession so that then we can do structured things to um, uh, to improve it. Uh, John, do you want to ask you a question then? Yeah, absolutely. How, how many digital professionals do you think that we have in the NHS? What do you think? Um, I'd say 80,000. So that is not a bad guess. Um, looking at the electronic staff record, we think it's somewhere in between the forty-one to fifty-three thousand mark. Let's let's use fifty thousand as a sort of a rule of thumb. It's still probably less than most other industries that they have about the five to ten percent mark of employees are digital professionals, um, which would be seventy-five thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand if if it was this uh, an organisation the scale of the NHS. So we're probably a little bit under par in comparison to most other industries. Um, our workforce planning work ind- indicates that we're going to see an increasing trajectory uh, over the next 10 years, uh, maybe by a growth of another 30 or so thousand roles, full-time equivalent roles, um, in a a data-driven future. We'll be publishing some information on that shortly on the HE website. So it's it's an area where we've got uh, a large number of people, but perhaps not as many as we're likely to need. Of those 50,000, there are in fact 10,000 different job titles. Wow. So, so roughly one job title for every five roles, which is utterly ludicrous. What that means is that we've got no standard language for describing the roles that we have and the families of roles that we belong to. And it's amazing how important it is that the, the, um, uh, your listenership, uh, our, our analyst community will recognize this. There's an, there's an importance to be able to give something a name so you can count it. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, until, until you can uh, give something a name, you can't then make rules about what you do with that, that group of things. In this case, it's group of people. Mm-hmm. So um, so we're, we're doing some work with central government and um, with two other groups, actually, which I'll talk, to, talk about in a second to try and implement DDAT and make sure that it is appropriately NHSified. And those two other groups are, firstly, um, uh, the head of profession. So we have uh, Ming Tang. In fact, I think you've interviewed her as part of this series, who is our our head of profession for data and analytics Mm -hmm. in the NHS. Now, she has the mandate, I suppose, for creating a profession, and she is right behind this agenda. 
And I don't think we would be making anywhere near as much progress if it wasn't for her leadership and her drive um, pulling together communities, in fact, such as this one, um, in order to talk about the, the community and the profession. The second important partner for us is the professional body, uh, AFA, the Association of Professional Healthcare Analysts. So AFA um, gives voice to the profession. And unless you join it, and unless you're an active member, unless you, unless you talk about what your hopes and dreams are, your desires, the way you want to describe your job, the, the capabilities you think you need, um, uh, AFA is unable to represent your view. You need to talk about it and share your view until and unless they develop the ability to read your mind, which is unlikely to happen uh, in uh, the um, the near future, unfortunately. Um, so that combination, sort of AFA as the voice of the professional body, uh, Ming as the head of profession, voice of the, the mandate that um, she has to make change and drive the creation of a profession, and mm-hmm. um, the digital readiness program as the uh, the group that's pulling together the infrastructure that enables those things to work together um, is going to um, basically create three things. So the first is the language for uh, for individual roles and capabilities within those. That sets a bar, an expectation yeah. of what good enough is for you in your current role and you in your future role, the one that you want to aim for, and therefore the gap analysis of the capabilities you need to get. The second big pillar for us is learning. So how do we create the uh, environment for learning, the space and time, but also crucially, the nuts and bolts, uh, the learning artifacts, the courses, the MOOCs, the the degrees, the the um, bite-sized learning that enable you to gain the capabilities you need to do your job now and in the future. Um, and we're going to be wrapping that into the banner of the NHS Digital Academy as it goes forward and as it grows, so that is not just a course for the a hundred or so CIOs and CCIOs a year. It is for the full 50,000. Um, the third pillar is around the use of networks. So how do we how do we support, um, promote, um, and retain the uh, local ownership of um, networks to share um, tacit knowledge and experiential knowledge, whilst also providing a route to help organisations understand what they need to do to um, develop uh, their profession of analytics and data professionals within that organization. We're going to use a specific class of networks called the Informatics Skills Development Networks, um, championed in the Northwest originally. So if you're listening yeah. from the Northwest, yeah. you guys are ahead of the field on this one. Um, and those three pillars we think are needed in order to create a profession. Fantastic. Brilliant. And James, I mean, some fantastic sort of uh, insight there that you shared with us. What would be your closing advice to the analytical community who are listening on, on, the, on this sort of podcast today? Well, number one, as the great Andy Kinnear often says, we will get the profession we deserve. What that means is that unless you get involved in shaping and contributing your voice to the development of the analyst community, it won't be heard and your needs will not be met. So join AFA, join your professional body, and then contribute to every opportunity that you have, every survey and questionnaire, every user experience piece of work they undertake, every interview they invite you to, um, and share what you're doing. Um, And then do so publicly. Tweet about it, um, stick stuff on Facebook, uh, talk at um, conferences, go to conferences, talk to your peers, um, and actively contribute to the development of your profession. Great. James, that's been fantastic listening to that. I mean, just just recapping on some of the things you said, you know, from initially when we started off about, you know, your early career about looking to cure cancer, but wanting to make that impact quicker than 20 years. And then you moved on to, you know, 
all the change. You need to own the change yourself to be part of that. But have faith, I think, in kind of that journey that, that you, you look for a role, it was there in MP Fit. You know, having faith that there is something out there for you, I think is re- really good. But also, as you, you mentioned as well about the power of approach, that if you are looking to change, you know, keep the people who are involved in that as, as key and central to that, I think was really, really powerful. And the power of co-creation from a sort of user perspective that this all came through. And then you mentioned as well, we we're talking about, you know, kind of, you know, imposter syndrome. We all feel that, but it's quite normal. But there's an awful lot we can do, you know, looking at professionalization from Chime, um, you know, joining AFA and professionalizing ourselves because we owe it to ourselves and to the organizations to, 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 to ensure that we are a professional body. And then I think you mentioned as well that, you know, innovation is going to continue rapidly, but we are, we are in an industry that needs to be really safe, delicate balance, but leaders need to create that culture. And I think the, the final call out, I think you mentioned as well, which I think is really powerful, is everybody get involved, you know, make the industry we want it to be and, you know, really powerful. But no, thank you very much for, for sharing those uh, uh, insights with us and what do you do because i mean obviously the role itself what you just covered it is hugely um demanding what i imagine what do you do to relax outside of <laughs> thank you for asking that question also a really nice summary might i say um so i am denied about sharing this one but as i have been on bbc's pointless and admitted it to the nation i will share it with your listenership as well so what yeah. i do genuinely yep. every two weeks is i i play dungeons and dragons with my friends and i do that over zoom nowadays i tell you what zoom has meant that i do a lot more frequently than i used to it used to be only um once every six months or so and we meet up for a weekend and pretend to be uh, people other than we are and invent stories um but now i'm doing it every other week and i love it Fantastic. brilliant it's great yeah. though it's some amazing benefits i've read about that as well about stretching your imagination muscles it's good for strategic and also problem solving. So it's a natural fit there, isn't it? Well, I have to admit, I don't do it for those sorts of things. But <laughs> I, but I, I, I do find it creative, and I find it yeah. escapist. You know, it's um, I, I like uh, um, I suppose writing my own stories. So yeah. I do that with my friends, and it's a lot of fun. Brilliant. And James, finally, how do, how can we uh, follow you on Twitter? My Twitter handle is at yep. James Freed five, no full stops, no nothing, and five uh, numerical five. Um, I respond to tweets. I respond to DMs. So feel free, Fantastic. follow away. Brilliant. I'm going to have to uh, get you again onto the uh, podcast as well when you, some of the other works move forward. But really delighted to have you on. Thanks very much for sharing your uh, insights with our listeners. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So I'd like to thank our speaker for joining us today and for everybody else tuning in to this podcast. Uh, Look forward to seeing you in the future.